the 20th, I, out of Proverbs 20, here's verse 4. If you are too lazy to plow, don't expect a harvest. Wow. Simple, right? <laughs> We're continuing in our series where we've been talking about God's exceedingly great and precious promises, which are always true. And um, so we've been on this for a number of weeks now. So here's a real quick review of the promises we've been, been on so far. First promise was, I will not fear God is always with me. And our text was Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Second promise that we went into is, I will not doubt because God is in control. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, or he will direct your path. We, uh, we've really taken those apart. And then um, last time, I will not despair because God is always good. And uh, um, scripture there was uh, Romans 8, 28, for we know that um, those who love, for those who love God, all things work together for the good of them who are called according to his purposes and love the Lord. So um, I, and I'm enjoying these, these promises, and you might guess I've studied lots of promises, and I know lots of the promises God's given in his word. You probably do too. Um, but this has also forced me to get into the theology about the promises. Which, how do we know they're true, and when are they for us, and how do they work? And, and so I, I think I've actually enjoyed, I guess you wouldn't be surprised, I've enjoyed more of the theology um, digging on that to, uh, to find out. So we've been de- developing this theology along with the, pro- uh, the promises themselves, and today I want to just make a quick pass through the book of Titus which is going to help us with the next point in our theology that I want us to grasp. Uh, Titus 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the, faith, for, for the sake of, uh, of the faith of God's elect, that's you if you have embraced Christ as Lord and King, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, now here comes a promise, in hope of eternal life. Now I think that's probably... The, the greatest promise ever made. I mean, we, we talk about a lot of promises in God's word, but I'll bet you if we take a vote a thousand years from now, we're going to say, that's the best promise. Wait a second. Eternal life. A thousand years from now, we're going to say, that's the best promise. Amen. Okay. All right. I mean, it's, a, it's not like there's an election or anything going on here, but it's a pretty spectacular thing that has, has us pursuing relationship with God. Um, with, with God, which, who never lies, promised before the ages. God made promises about eternal life before the ages. It's just really cool. And pretty much all of the theology we've been talking about so far, so far, so far has been in that passage. Number one, God's a promiser. And, um, you know, that's the promises of God are the things that he gives to us between the problem and the resolution. You've got a problem or a challenge in life before you get to the resolution. It's the promise that helps you walk in faith in that intervening time. So we can walk there, God's promises. He doesn't want us wandering and wavering and, and waffling on all those issues. He wants us to be sure. He wants us to be confident. And, um, you know, well, I'm not confident. Well, you can be. You can be. You can, you can be because God has made, he's told you some things and he's made some promises. And they're exceedingly great and they're precious. And, um, okay. And the second thing um, that we see there in, in, in this passage from Titus is that God keeps his promises. He, doesn't, he can't lie. He can never lie. He's not capable. He cannot lie. He doesn't lie. You know, when you and I say, I promise about something, it's a statement of our intention, right? I mean, I, I want to. I really mean to. I plan to. There's no other choice right now in my mind. Um, and our response when somebody says, well, I promise you. I promise this. Our response is, okay, good. We'll see. Right? Am I the only one that thinks that way? I mean, that's what we all think. Somebody says, I promise, we think, yeah, you've, you've, you're pretty good at this. We'll see if this one works out too. I mean, we, we just, it's a statement of intent. It's what we're thinking. But with God, it's not like that. When, when he says promises, he's not saying, I'll try. When God says a promise, he says, I can and I will. <laughs> it's firm, right? It's a, when God's making a promise, I can and I will. And there's really no question. When God makes a promise, what's he say? I can and I will. Okay, now say it like you meant it. I can and I will. Well, <laughs> good way to go. Now, um, you know, and so God is a promiser. He keeps his promises. And then we talked about the fact that God wants us to test his promises. Right? We've been on that a little bit. And I suppose some of you are thinking, well, you know, 
Pastor Terry, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because I got a question about him wanting us to test. Because Jesus said, you should never put the Lord your God to the test. So I, I appreciate you, Pastor Terry. We, we, you know, it's good that you like cupcakes and all, but if it comes down to trusting what you say and what Jesus says, well, sorry, but going to go with Jesus. <laughs> oh, good. Good decision. That's the right decision. I mean, of course, that's the decision. But what was he actually saying there? I think we should look into that because I want you to be able to settle this issue if you have any questions about it at all. It's just like me to plant a question in you and then we'll walk through it because I don't want you to, to waver on this topic. Do you really know what he's saying? So let's see what he's saying in that word. Now the context that that, that passage comes up, Jesus has been fasting. He's been getting in touch with his father. He's, he's, he's coming out of the wilderness, okay? And he's, it's kind of interesting. It's like a good time to tempt someone who's hungry but it's not a good time to tempt someone who's that in cadence with, with the Father in heaven, okay? But that's what, that's what happens. He's coming out of the wilderness, and Satan comes along to tempt him. And Satan has three swings at the plate here, so to speak. And I don't think it's, it's not a big contest here for the second person of the Trinity to deal with these temptations. You know, he, he says, let's see what you got. I mean, come on, I made you. It's not a big deal. By the way, this is a completely separate issue. Um, Jesus and Satan are not adverse. Ad, ad, they're not brothers, okay? As some churches, the Mormon church will tell you that they are brothers. They're not, that's, that's not the real matchup that's going on here. Satan's adversary would be like one of the angels, another created being, okay? Jesus will look at that and go, hey, I made you. Like, okay, like I'm not gonna get into a contest with a chair that I made for Lisa. I made it. I can unmake it any time I want. It's not like, this isn't the Terminator, okay? So anyway, I'm off on a tangent. Matthew 4, here's where that passage comes up, um, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that'd be Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay, there's not quite agreement about where that is. But some say it's the top of the highest port part of the temple, which would be 180 feet up in the air. There's another a place. There's several places where that could have been. So he takes Jesus up there. So there's these two people, or looks like people up on this pinnacle. I'm, I'm wondering people down below if they saw it or what they think. Anyway, that's a distraction. And he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. What Satan's really saying here is God's watching out for you. He's not gonna let anything happen to you. So now that you know, you're, 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 the, you're God in human flesh, you're the man, you're, you're Jesus, why don't you throw yourself down and, and we'll have a big show. Let's see it. Because if you do, the angels are gonna come rushing in here and they're gonna catch you. It's gonna be awesome. Do it. Come on, do it, do it, you know, right? <laughs> and Jesus says to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, there's the quote. So what's that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. The first thing that it would mean is very simple and intuitive here. Don't act foolishly and expect God to bail you out. Every parent says so, right? It's perfect. You, know, you might know some people who do that. They do foolish things, and then they kind of expect God to, to bail them out. Now, I'll tell you a little story here, and I don't mean to be judgmental about this couple that Lisa and I grew up with and we've been friends with forever, but we first got married, and you know, when you first get married, you have other friends that are your age, and you're getting married, and this other couple who um, were um, also believers... For in some setting, they announced to us, we're not using birth control. And, okay, didn't really ask for that information, but they went on to tell us the, their theology. If God wants us to have children, we'll have children. If he doesn't, we won't. I'm thinking that has less to do with how this works because God already made the decisions when he formed you in your mother's womb. There's stuff that happens if, if A plus B, you know, C, okay? So, I mean, and frankly, this couple ended up spitting out lots of kids, okay? It's like, I mean, this is one example, for example, this is one, one case where, um, you know, one plus one does not equal two, 
Okay. Anyway, so I, I mean, this is one of those things that we walked away from that thinking, no, you know, God made these decisions way a long time ago. And you are now asking for something to, for God to undo something he's already created and established and set in motion. And it just didn't make sense to us. God says, Jesus says, I'm not going to put God to the test. Don't do that. Don't act foolishly and expect God to bail you out. Another example, and this one's a little more recent, a few years back, um, was uh, this, these kind of cases come into the news every so often. There's a, a woman, a, a, a girl, 11-year-old girl named uh, Madeline Newman. She was in Wisconsin. And, her, and she was sick. And uh, this was one of those things where her parents decided that instead of getting her help, they were going to pray for her instead. And she had a very easily fixable ailment. She had a, a situation with diabetes. But her parents said, nope, we're going to pray. And they did. They prayed. And Madeline died. She just died. It's tragic. It was an easily fixable problem. Don't act foolishly and expect God to bail you out. Prayer, prayer is important. I completely support it. Do everything you can do and, 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 and then trust God to do the things you can't do. But don't put God to the test. Just don't do that. Don't act foolishly and expect him to bail you out. You know, and when Jesus said that to Satan, um, you know, he was quoting actually Deuteronomy. He was quoting Deuteronomy 6.15, For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Okay, this is what Jesus was quoting. So to find out what this is talking about, we've got to go to Exodus 17, what was going on at Massa. Okay, so I'm unraveling this down to ground zero for you so you can see what Jesus was using as his frame of reference. So here's the story in Exodus 17. God had just, he had just finished bringing the children of Israel, the whole nation, delivering them miraculously out of slavery in, his, in, in, in Egypt. Part of the Red Sea, Every day they see the miraculous presence of the Lord uh, 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 by the daytime, by the nighttime. They, he, he's bringing manna and, I mean, he's miraculously caring for them. He's just miracle, 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 miracle. And at the point of this testing that was going on, the people had been without water for a very, fairly brief time. They just didn't have enough water and they were kind of upset about that and they started to take a little attitude with God about that. We want water, and we want it now, kind of a thing, right? And um, in fact, it, it says and describes this in Exodus 17, it says that Moses was afraid for his life. The attitudes were so bad. And I think God's kind of watching this um, from heaven, and, and things, it's kind of like the teacups kind of starting to rattle a little bit, you know. Um, and, and God's probably thinking, you know, are, are you kidding me? I just delivered you I protected you. I miraculously led them. Did you notice all of the dead Egyptians at the bottom? I mean, you know, in, in the meantime, the people are murmuring, God, you're evil. You, you, you're nothing to us if you don't do this now. I don't want to have anything to do with a God who won't give me a glass of water when I ask for it. Kind of, just, you know, terrible. Don't, don't do that. Loved ones, do not do that with the Lord. You know, don't disregard every good thing that the Lord has ever done and then somehow don't get rebellious and ungrateful and say, God, I gotta have this. If, if you don't meet this need, if you don't fix this situation, then God, you don't care about me. Don't, don't do that. Don't put your relationship with God on the line over one little simple thing and you can't see everything that's going on, all of the moving parts. I think you maybe have watched people do that, and, um, but just don't put God in that situation. Don't provoke God with ungratefulness and rebellion. So, so what Jesus is talking about here, the two things that, that, that I think Scripture says, it means when it says don't put God to the test. Two things is don't act foolishly and expect God to bail you out. And the second one is don't act willfully and provoke God to judge you for rebellion and ungratefulness. Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus 17. So with that understanding of you know, what's, what it means to put God to the test, it certainly does not mean that God does not want you to test his promises. 
He wants us to test his promises. He wants us to see if the things he's told us would be true. It, it, it's really true. I don't have, is it really true, God, that I don't have to despair? Is it really true I don't have to doubt? That I don't have to walk in fear? Are those things really true, God? Can I trust your promises? Yeah, it's true. He's a promiser. He keeps his promises. And he wants us to test that. Now, a new piece of theology to add to our growing theology on this topic. God's promises are activated by faith. Activated by faith. How do I activate the promises of God in my life? You activate them by faith. Have you ever noticed how, um, or, or maybe, maybe you know some of the promises of God, but they're not operating in your life? Okay, have you ever noticed that? I mean, like, you know, like you can know, if you're a musician, you can know a piece of music, know about it, but it's not yours unless you're actually playing it, right? Or, or you, you, can, you can know some prescription to fix an ailment, but it's not yours unless you take it, right? I mean, I got a headache. I know about ibuprofen. Headache's still there. Why isn't it working? Well, I haven't taken it, right? <laughs> okay, faith. How do you, you know, how do you activate this promise for yourself? Not just know about it, not just see it happening on the big screen, but how do I experience God with me? How do I experience God's in control? How do I experience God's good? Okay, here are three things to help you get these promises going on at your house, okay? It's very, very practical. First thing is you've got to see it. You have to actually be willing to see it. You know, sometimes we don't see until we look. God's there. You're going to see it if your heart is available to see him, him, him and you're truly looking. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, when you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. I will be found, says the Lord. It's like, and, 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 you know, it can even come out like a light bulb experience kind of thing where the lights go on. And, and, but until you're actually looking for it, you're not going to see it. By the way, I think it's important for us to understand that some of God's promises are unique to some particular situation. You know, like they're not all, all of the promises in the word of God are not for us. Like for example, God made some very specific promises to Samson that are not for you and for me. You get that, right? Okay, I don't get to have superhuman strength if I, you know, if I get a Richard Sherman hairdo, right? And by the way, it's not his hairdo, it's something else. But anyway, so, so long Richard Sherman, I'm sorry to see you go. Um, distracted again by the Seahawks, it's terrible. Um, anyway, so some, some of the promises... Um, in the Word of God are for a particular people, and they're not for me, and they're not for you. And, and, and we need to discern when we read the, the different promises in the Word, is it a unique promise or is it universal? You know, It's universal if in many other places in Scripture it's confirmed over and over in all kinds of dis- different situations. God says the same thing. You know, for example, the, the promise God is with his children, you, know, uh, you might be thinking about um, the promise that um, you know, God made to Gideon there, and it doesn't mean just because he gave it to Gideon there that it doesn't mean the same thing for everybody else. So um, that, that promise to, to God, God being with his children is over in Scripture, over and over and over. It's all kinds of places, all over in Scripture. Um, and, and so these exceedingly great promises we're looking at, the, the precious promises we're looking at, are ones that are universally given to God's children over and over in, in all generations at all times. Okay, so you got to see it. Second thing is you have to savor it. You got to treasure it up in your heart. Mm. It's kind of like having a piece of chocolate at room temperature. You don't have to bite the thing and swallow. You bite it and let it melt. And you savor it. <laughs> chocolate fans in the room? Oh, man. Not, that, not the waxy, the good stuff. And it just, yeah. Honey, do you have any chocolate on you right now? No, no chocolate? Okay, later. You know, but you, you, you allow yourself to savor it. You see the promise unfolding in your life. You know, I'm going to see this promise in the land of the living. It's, it's not when I, in the by and by. I mean, I'm going to see this with my own eyes while I'm breathing oxygen. It's, um, you know, and, and, and that's a good thing to do because one of the, the characteristics about faith is that faith announces its victories in advance. Pastor Burt used to love to say that. I just love that. Okay, third thing is you got to share it. 
you know, God's promises will become real to you when you testify about it to other people. Here's what God's given to me. Here are the things that, here's the promise and I'm resting in it. And you begin to confess the word of God. You know, there's power in doing that, by the way. Not an incantation. It's not magical and mystical. But there's a power. You know, God's word says this, and I'm standing and I'm believing it, and I'm trusting it. It's coming. I just haven't got there yet. We're trusting in God in this household, and we're going to see it happen. So those three things, see it, savor it, share it, will help you. So our fourth point of the theology of God's promises is that they're activated by faith. Okay. So promise number four we're going to get to today now is, um, and, um, is I will not falter, comma, and I'm going to come to what's after the comma in a little bit, okay? I will not falter. Now, falter is a very serious word. You know, um, so far in this series, we've talked about fearing, we've talked about doubting, we've talked about despair, and those things are bad. They can slow you down. Faltering is at a whole new level because it puts you on the ground. It stops you. It's pretty. It's, it's, it's really not that the others aren't serious, but this is the one that that a lot of people stops them. I'm gonna fail. I, we're our fear of failing or actual failing stops us dead in our tracks. And um, you know, it's 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 really serious. It's like you know, hey, man overboard, man down, medic. You know, it's, it's the serious one. When you falter, it, you, just don't, you just know in your soul, I'm not going to get out of this next week or next year. It's, it's, it's bad. And now listen, this personal comment I would tell you, I don't want you to falter. God doesn't want you to falter. Jesus, for, for sure, he was, I prayed for you that you will not fa- fail in, that, in your hour of temptation. He's, he, they're, they're, I will not falter. In this passage, um, Isaiah 43, we're going to be in, it has some of the most treasured promises of God. You know, here we're now leaving the gold mine to get into the diamond mine, so to speak. But there are some really great things. So Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, uh, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob. Jacob, he's referencing God's children. So by the act of Jesus, that includes you and me now, God's children. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Now, I really think that if you're going to appropriate one of God's promises, you've got to get the context. Context is king. Okay, I don't want to ever get in the place where we just jump in and rip a passage out of Scripture and just, you know, that's just not right. So we're going to learn the context of what's going on here in the preceding chapter, which is chapter 42. And here's what's going on um, in chapter 42 of, of the book of Isaiah. God's people are being judged, and um, they're wayward, rebellious attitudes. And, and basically, they got to a place where God says, okay, that's enough. And God cuts to the chase with them, and you see some of the things he's saying about them to them. Um, in verse 18, he says, you're deaf, you're blind. A little bit later, he says, you're trapped in holes. You're hidden in prisons. God's, you know. And then God asks, in verse 24, God asks this question. Who gave you up, Jacob, to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Then he answers the question. It was me. God says, I did it. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways we would not walk and whose laws they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the, might of, uh, and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around. Doesn't sound very pretty. But he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. God says, you know, I put all this on you and, and you're not getting it. You're still not getting it. And then comfort comes in chapter 43. And here, that was the context. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. He redeemed you. Redemption is one of the, the, the absolute greatest doctrines in the word of God. As a Christian, you gotta catch this. You have to understand this. It's the idea that we were lost in sin. We have no money to pay the bill. There's no way out. You owe a debt you can never pay. You're, you're, you're going to rot in prison and there is no solution to your problem. And then Christ just comes along and redeems you. 
you know, he pays the price so you can be set free. So you're redeemed. You know, I, I heard this described, I've heard this, this whole scenario described in different times by different preachers. I heard one preacher say, you know, because God is just, sin has a penalty for it. And because God is merciful, he decided to pay the price. Redeemed. He says here, fear not, I've redeemed you. You had the worst possible problem that requires the greatest imaginable, imaginable sacrifice. And God says, I took care of it. I took care of it. I've redeemed you. Fear not, I've redeemed you. I called you by name, you're mine. And we look at the problems we have and they're big to us. And to God, they're just no problem at all. You know, and then here comes this great promise in verse two. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. You know, he's, he's, he's acknowledging, you're gonna go through some hard times. Water here is symbolic of a trial, okay? You're gonna go through a valley and as if the valley wasn't bad enough, it's starting to fill up with water, you know? And, and then the fear kind of starts to creep in, creep in because the water's kind of starting to rise past our ankles and now it's up to our thighs and our, you know, our waist and, 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 and now it's getting up to our neck and pretty soon we're on our tippy toes and we got our nose and, you know, God, this is, it's a lot. I don't know if I can do this much longer. Where are you? And God's saying, when you walk through the waters, I'm going to be with you. Um, you're not going to go through this alone. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Maybe it's deep, but it's not going to get too deep. And you say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm in been on my head over here. We've been treading water at our house for the last year. Okay, who's holding you up? Who is it that's holding you up? You know, so, and so he says, he says, I'll be, and when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Did you catch the word here that God keeps using is through? Through the waters, through the river, through the fire. And, and, and a lot of people decide to try to around instead of through, <laughs> right? There's a cloud there, I'll just go around. And um, have you ever noticed that when you try to do that, sometimes the cloud just moves back in front of you? Have you ever noticed that? When that's going on, it's probably because it's God. And um, you are going to go through it, right? Kind of a thing. This word through here, it's very, very closely related um, at a root level to the word Hebrew. First time you see that word in the, in, in the scripture is Genesis 13. And it's the ethnic description for um, the children of Israel. They were called the Hebrews. And it, the word literally means the ones who go through or it means the ones from the other side who have go, meaning they got to go through the go across the river okay it's the ones who go through and by virtue of our spiritual heritage children of the king we're those children we're the ones who go through and you know god allows the water and god allows the river and god allows the fire but we're going to go through and we're going to come out the other side God's made this promise. And that's a good word for some of you today who've come. And it's why the Lord brought you to church to hear that, that the Lord is going to take you through. You are going to be okay. You will get through. You're going to get through. And when Isaiah says, you know, when you walk through the fire, you'll not be, be burned. You know, it's going to get hot. It's not going to get too hot. It makes me think of Daniel chapter 3. Um, Adrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So I want to fly through that passage because it's a very cool um, passage. And it's a gr the Bible is very often the best illustration of itself. Daniel 3, starting in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar, he's this cranky old king, spoke saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you um, do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? Now, if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, a bunch of instruments, with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I've made, good, we're good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Hmm, well, we're about to see, Neb. You just keep watching. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Talk to the hand. <laughs> 
I don't know. Sounds like they're pretty confident. If, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Okay, bring it on, king. Notice how they're being respectful in the middle of their stance. It's amazing to watch what's going on here. I, there's so much Holy Spirit here. I don't think they're being arrogant. I think they're being faith-filled and confident and respectful at the same time. It's, uh, they're threading an amazing needle here. Then, then, verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards them. I, <laughs> I wonder what his face did. You know, <laughs> something weird. Um, you know, and he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Uh-oh. God would have been able to save them from the regular temperature, but now it's seven times more. God's, you know, this is going to be too much. Um, okay. And he commanded the mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. All three of them get thrown in. God didn't stop it. Could he have stopped it? <laughs> he could have. But God didn't stop this whole thing. Wow. Then these three men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. What's going to happen now? God's made some promises. What's going to happen? Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and he spoke saying to, the, to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king, what do your yes men say to you after you've just thrown people into the fire for saying no to you? <laughs> I don't know. Um, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Awesome. Awesome. Jesus Christ, the pre the second person of the Trinity, where is he? He's with them, just like he promised. There's a, there's, this is so full of other sermon requests. Preach me, preach me. But I will just say this. How does Nebuchadnezzar know what the Son of God looks like? People know. Every person knows. Rome, the book of Romans tells them so that they will be without excuse. People know God when they see him. Anyway, he sees God <laughs> and he just declares it. Like, what is he going to say? Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and kings, king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power, the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. I love a good campfire. The smell will stick with you forever. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. That's awesome. Helps me understand Isaiah 43. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flame will not consume you. Well, maybe you're thinking, yeah, Terry, but these guys are famous guys from the Bible. I live in Tenino. What's the deal? You know, that's why you need the second part of today's promise. Okay, I will not falter... God is watching. You've got to know that God is watching. Did you know that? God is watching. He sees it all. He, there's, he's not missing a single thing. However, I think this concept can kind of creep us out sometimes. So I want to, and the reason it, it can be creepy is because we have a wrong view of what it means that God is watching us. So I'm, I want to I think, because uh, if you have a wrong view of it, you might not think it's such a good deal that God is watching. So I want to just spend a couple minutes on that. Here are five wrong views of God is watching, wrong ideas of what it means. Some people think that God watches like a resentful parent. You know, you'll hear some funny things at weddings. 
By the way, did you all get up at three in the morning and watch the wedding or whatever time it was on? All of you men who did that, hand over your man card right now. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble with all the women for this, but it's just silly. <laughs> anyway, you'll hear funny things at weddings. I was at a wedding one time, and um, you know, I just overheard this conversation of a distant family member who was talking about this this couple, and they were going on a honeymoon, and the honeymoon, and you know, I can't believe they're going to Maui. Why do they need to go to Maui? I've never been to Hawaii. You know, it's like I'm thinking, you know. Some people are like that. Some people think, though, that God is like that. That every time something good happens, he's not excited about it. You know, it's like, but Zephaniah 3 says that God rejoices over you with singing. (laughs) Every good thing that happens in your life, God is rejoicing. He's happy about it. Every good thing. Every good decision you make, every, every, every righteous action you take, God is dancing, singing. He's not a resentful parent. Okay, number two, some people think that God watches you like a hawk. Okay, He's cruising, cruising over you at 150 feet, waiting for your attention to be turned away so he can swing in on you and snatch you and pounce on you every time you make a wrong thought or action. It's not like that. You know, Psalm 103.14 says, I, I love this scripture. It says that God knows our frame and he knows that we are dust. <laughs> Listen, I'm not here to stand up and preach hyper grace. I'm just telling you that God knows the things that for you are hard. He knows the things that are a challenge for you. In Romans 8 verse 1 are not the words of a hawk waiting to perch There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, number three. Some people think God is watching you like the crabby lady at church. (laughs) You know, there's this picture in your mind of her shaking her finger. It could be a man, okay? But I found this, so it's a woman, right? shaking their finger at you, never really happy with what you do and the decisions you make. God is not like that either. You know, Psalm 31.8 says, it says that he has set our feet in a wide place. What that means is that you stand in a place that's firm and safe. It's not a place where you're going to very easily fall off and somehow crater your relationship with God. I fell this week. And, you know, that's not like that. It's a wide place. It's a wide place God has set us. And, you know, we should make, of course, we should make good choices, um, but we should make them because they honor God and because, and because the goodness of God compels us to righteousness and it should lead us to repentance. So he's not like the crabby lady or the crabby man who's never really happy. With Another, number four, some people think God's like a suspicious parent, you know, okay. We've got our circle of trust here, my eyes, watching you all the time. The British have eyes and ears everywhere, you know. Now, Psalm 37, 4 says that God, you know, he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Don't you think God loves you? Don't you, don't you know he wants to bless you? And number five, some people think God is like this cantankerous boss. Time is money. Why are you wasting your time on that? Get cracking. You know, get something going. Does that sound like your boss? <laughs> you must work at the church. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> now, we just went through that list of wrong views about God um, watching us because I, I've, I've got some, what I think is really good news for you because God's watching you is the most loving, tender, gracious, kind Benevolent, you know, he has this interest in your well-being, your overall perfect well-being. So don't let some strange person, some crabby, finger-pointing, wagging, you know, overbearing, something in your past or, uh, you know, cause you to misunderstand the wonderful truth about God is watching. So 
Over and over in scripture, you'll see this passage that talks about where the eyes of the Lord are. So here's, I'm going to give you a couple of them, a couple of scriptures about that. The eyes of the Lord, and here are some facts. The eyes of the Lord are inescapable. Proverbs 5.21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Okay. So the eyes of the Lord are inescapable. Next one, the eyes of the Lord are synonymous with what's right and true. Deuteronomy 6.18, And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. There's a good one for us to teach teach the little ones. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.18, if they can say the word Deuteronomy, that's good. But... You know, all through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, all through Scripture, it talks about kings who did good in the sight of the Lord and kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the eyes of the Lord are synonymous with what's right and what's true. Constantly moving and gazing, you know, wanting to move us toward what's right and true. Next one, the eyes of the Lord are focused upon and attentive to his own. God sees everything, but there's this, 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 attentiveness, this loving care, this predisposition in his gaze upon the lives of his children. It's not just a universal gaze. There's a very, very focused attention upon God's own. 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there's a way God is paying attention to you because of your love for Christ that's very special and very, very specific. Next one, the eyes of the Lord are searching for people to bless. That's good news. Second uh, Chronicles 16, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He's looking for people that want to experience his strength and to bless. Okay, then the last one, the eyes of the Lord are provoked to grace when he observes a righteous person. Genesis 6, um, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What a, what a great promise that God is watching. He's watching. He's watching the depth of the water. He's watching the, the pressure of the current. He's watching the temperature of the fire, the heat. He's, he's also watching the amount of strength that you have to endure. And at the moment that heaven knows you can't go on, you know, God's watching, and at some point he'll say, enough, and pluck you out. So back to Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 4. Why is God watch? Why is he watching us? Why are his eyes on me? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give, uh, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Those are provinces in Egypt. And here it is. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. <laughs> Precious, precious is a value word, right? Okay, money is not precious, right? You can get money, you can figure it out. Education isn't precious, you can get it. I mean, it's important, I'm not saying that. but God's promises are precious. God's people are precious. precious. Precious is a value word, you know. When God says, you are precious in my eyes, lock that down in your heart and throw the key away. Stop believing you're not precious. Lock it in. Hold on to it. Just lock it up and then toss the key. You will never need, nobody ever needs that key again. You know, it's critical we understand what that means, that we are precious in God's eyes, but we also need to know what it doesn't mean. Okay? So I've got a request of you. I want you to strap yourself in till I get to the next, end, to the end of this point I want to make, because otherwise you'll leave here mad at me. Okay, so put on your seatbelt because um, I want to talk about um, what precious in God's eyes does not mean. I think today there, are, there is a growing number of pop psychology preaching and preachers out there whose primary message centers on you, centers on us. You know, it's going to tell you that you're precious and they'll tell you that you're good because of, of all of your qualities and because of all of your potential. And, and it's flattery. It's flattery. It's, it's like a pickup line meant to garner a following. And um, if you want to understand the spiritual mechanism that's going on when that's happening, you can read about that in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.3, that'll explain. I'm not going to go on that side trail. But here are Jesus' words on that topic. 
Jesus, okay, so I'll just read it to you, Mark, Mark 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up and knelt before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Of course, Jesus doesn't answer that question. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus replied, no one is good except God alone. Jesus says, no one is good except God. Now, that statement by Jesus is pointing out a couple of different things. There is an example of Jesus saying, I am God. The guy recognizes he's good. So Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Because nobody's good but God. You are acknowledging I'm both good, then I must be God. That's one of the statements that's going on there. People who say Jesus never claimed to be God, they, don't, they haven't read the word. It's there in lots of places. Anyway, so that's one of the things. But the other thing that Jesus is saying there is no one is good. No one is good. We do a lot of good things and we try to be better than we used to be and that's a good goal. But by the standards of the creator of the universe, which are the ones that count, <laughs> if you care about eternity, those are the ones that count. We're not good. Now, I just can't for just even a microsecond believe that I'm precious in God's eyes because I'm good. <laughs> I am precious in God's eyes, but I'm not good. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're not good either. Check your seatbelt, keep it on, okay? Um, you know, the reason that we are precious in God's eyes is actually so much better than that. You know, you're valued. God has set this value upon you. And the value that he's placed upon you is not intrinsic to you. Okay? It's, it's, it, it, God has chosen to set his love upon you and his value upon you. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, He has chosen you in him before the foundation of the world. Okay. Psalm 139 also says that before your, he, knew, he knows all of, knew all of your days before there was one of them. He has known who you were before the earth was created. And he decided you were precious then, before you did one good thing. And the reason that, that's, that, that we're precious is that God has chosen and set and established that value. And it's because I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. That means I can't lose it or forfeit it. That's good news. <laughs> it's really good news. I mean, it's, it's something that God has determined. I'm valued. I'm just getting amped up here. I'm valued. I'm precious to God. It's totally disproportionate to who I am as a person. It's completely, it's just an awesome truth. It's just an awesome truth that God has decided that I'm precious. It's, it's so good not to have to live up to that. <laughs> you can't. You can't. And um, he saw you and he chose to love you and, and he redeemed you, redeemed you by his own grace. So it's just hard to get, wrap my mind around that. It's just hard to imagine this. And it's why he watches us because he sees us as precious. Precious. It's like you have this, you just want to take your eyes off of it. Okay, one final promise. We're just about done um, for today. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's watching and he's not gonna let you go through more than you can handle. He's not gonna let the waters overtake you. He's not gonna let the fires burn you and he's not gonna let temptation devour you. That word, by the way, temptation, the Greek word that's there, uh, parasmos, is, is, um, it, it, means, it, it's, it means both temptation and trial. In fact, the, the, when you see the word temptation or trial, it's the same Greek word all through Scripture. And so how, when the English translators pick a word, they've got to look at it contextually. But it's the same word. A temptation is a solicit solicitation to do evil. That's what a temptation is. And that comes from the enemy of our souls. It never comes from God. God never solicits you to do evil. Uh, James 1 says that God doesn't tempt us. But a trial does come from God. 
you know. The temptation is to make you worse. That comes from Satan. The trial comes from God, and it's to make you better. That scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, using that same word. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. What that's saying is that, you know, nobody knows what I'm going through. That's just not true. It's just not true. It's, it's that thing that you're going through, lots of people have gone through that before. Lots of other people are going through it right now and more people, Jesus tarries before he comes back, they're going to go through it in the future. But God's faithful. God's watching. And he's kind of got his hand on this thermostat and he's not going to let it get too hot. He's watching the depth gauge. He's not going to let it get too deep. You know, you may think, I'm, I, okay, but I'm losing. No, you're not losing it. You're not losing it. You don't know your own capacity. You don't know what the Lord is doing behind the scenes. And here's the thing. You don't know the strength that the Lord is putting in you today and will put in you tomorrow to carry you through. You know, what God allows you to go through is what will change you and shape you and make you more like Christ. And it brings glory to him. And it's not going to go on forever. And you're going to get through it. You're going to get through it. Exceedingly great and precious promises. I will not falter. God is watching. I can keep going. I can go another week. His mercies are new every morning. I'll be there tomorrow. Sometimes, sometimes he's going to give you strength to get through it. Sometimes he'll decide, okay, that's, that's enough, and he'll just pull you out. Sometimes he's going to provide a, 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 an opening, a way of escape. Sometimes he's going to send somebody to encourage you or send someone to help carry that burden. Sometimes he's going to give you energy to just begin a new season of faithfulness to God. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He'll make a way of escape. It's an incredible promise. He's watching you, and he's faithful. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you today that you are so faithful and that, Lord, you're with me, you're in control, you're good, and, Lord, even the fact that you're watching. Thank you, God, for the fact that you're watching. I pray, Lord, that something of life will be the result when I see that you're watching. Help me to see that, God, through your eyes, not through my own. Lord, I want to talk to you about people that are in the water today, that are in the fire today. And I ask for mercy. Not so much that you would remove the water or the fire, but Lord, that heaven's intervention would, would come. And that, Lord, our hearts would be ready to see it, that we wouldn't be like the kids of the children of Israel that would be complaining, I want my water and I want it now. Lord, that instead we would be going, this is hard, God. Your scripture tells me that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, that you would, Lord, carry the weight that you don't want me to carry. Your word promises me, God, that you will order the steps of the righteous. I need you to show me where to put my foot. And Lord, your word also promises that you will never quench this little tiny whisper of smoke that's left. You will never let that fire go out. Lord, fan it back into flame, I pray. Lord, for your kids here who just need a touch from heaven, thank you, God, for that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, church, before you walk out the doors here,